Please turn in your Bibles to Ezra in the Old Testament. Our passage this morning, Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And as a couple of reminders uh, about Ezra and its organization and what we've been studying, Ezra chapters 1 through 6 are primarily dealing with the rebuilding of God's temple. And as the Jews returned from exile to the land, the temple had been destroyed, and they first set up an altar, and then through a lot of opposition and through a lot of trials and tribulations, the temple was finally completed. And the last time I was up here sharing with you, that was the passage that we'd studied, that it was completed, dedicated, and then the Passover was celebrated, and thus concluded the first part of Ezra, which is the rebuilding of God's temple. And now here we are in chapter 7, primarily concerned with the rebuilding of God's people. So as the temple was completed, now we're going to look at the people being rebuilt. In the background that we've gone through this many times, but just in brief, this is God's people after exile. They were sent into exile for 70 years for going after false gods. Manasseh especially violated the instructions of God. They were sent away. But because God is good and gracious and kind, they knew everything that was going to happen. He had warned them ahead of time. If you do this, I'm sending you away. And it will be for this amount of time. And then I will bring you back. So they prayed and they followed God's instruction in exile. They built gardens, had families and the like. And they prayed toward the land as was promised, as was instructed. And so the Lord brought them back. Not all at once. The timeline can be a little fuzzy in your minds, but you should know that this happens over decades and generations. We are going to be now in Ezra 7, almost 80 years since Cyrus's initial decree. And yet the people of God continue to return to his land. And the people in Ezra, God's people, are especially, in my mind, typological of the church. Because the people of God before exile in the Davidic kingdom were geopolitical, they had a king, and they were sovereignly ruling themselves. But now out of exile, they are primarily a spiritual people. Primarily, they don't really rule themselves in the way they did prior to the exile. They're still under Medo-Persian rule and then eventually Greek and Roman. And so we see by God's kind faithfulness the church slowly emerging in the Old Testament. We see slowly this idea of the church emerging. And as we read about the rebuilding of God's temple, we thought about Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone of the temple. Jesus said, tear this temple down and I will do what? Rebuild it in three days. It took Herod 60 years to remodel this one, and it took the Jews 80 years to rebuild it in Ezra. What do you mean, Lord? What did he mean? His body. It's a spiritual temple of which he is the cornerstone. It says in 2 Peter that we are what? What? Living stones. How about an amen? We are living stones on top of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And if we are living stones on top of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, then just like him, we are also what? Living stones sacrifices. Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, really lived and really died. And he rose again from the grave. And he now is an example for us as we deny ourselves 
and act as living sacrifices, as it says in Scripture. So our theme today is the Christian observance. The Christian observance. We have three points that you may like to write down. They didn't make it into the um, bulletin this morning on my error, not Brother Chris's. The point one is this Ezra. This Ezra. Point two is the hand of the Lord. And point three, observance. And if you were like me and you were making space, leave lots of space for the third one and a little space for the first two. So let's read our passage, Ezra 7, 1 through 10. Now, after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahutub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help this morning. Father in heaven, author and perfecter, and especially, Lord, deliverer of these words that we have this morning, we pray for your help, Lord, as we wade into territory dealing with you, your perfections, your moral goodness, Lord, and the gospel, and maybe even our obligations to it. We pray, Lord, that you keep us sharp, that the gospel stays at the forefront of our mind, and that even though we look at the moral law and its goodness, that we don't inadvertently put obligations on our shoulders and put ourselves back under a covenant of works, but that we rest surely, truly, and only in you, Lord Jesus Christ, who has done it all for us on our behalf. And we pray, Lord, that in every way I get out of the way of the truth and it goes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps in point three you'll understand the prayer. But let's talk about this Ezra. This Ezra. First things first. After this. After what? What is this? This is when the temple was finished. This was our last sermon on the matter. It was completed. It was dedicated. And the Passover was celebrated. And we talked about this. That we are made complete in Christ. And our life as a living sacrifice is a Christian dedication to the gospel. And the celebration of the Passover is none other than the celebration of the gospel, which we celebrate every Lord's Day, and especially in his table here. After that, this Ezra did what? And after this is how long is after? It's about 60 years later, 60 years after the temple was completed, and maybe 80 years after the start of the exile. 
Ezra, we don't know how old he is, but some suggest he wasn't even born when the temple was completed. But this is the Ezra in question. And who is this Ezra? He is called the Chronicler. The Chronicler, an ominous name. A skillful scribe. He's also known as Esdras. If you're ever reading something a little older and you're confused by Esdras 1 or Esdras 2, it may be referring to Ezra and Nehemiah. Possibly there's Esdras 1 through 4, and then that starts to talk about First and Second Chronicles. There are also ap- apocryphal books called Ezra, Esdras, so you um, don't follow that as a true one for one, but he's certainly known also as Esdras. Traditionally, Judaism credits Ezra with establishing the great assembly of scholars and prophets who became the forerunners of the Sanhedrin which we read a lot about in the Gospels, as the authority on matters of religious law. And in rabbinic traditions, Ezra is metaphorically referred to as the flowers that appear on the earth. Ezra is thought of as the flowers that appear on the earth, signifying what? Springtime in the national history of Ezra. Ezra is a much revered person in the Jewish tradition. And according to him, he was the author of First and Second Chronicles. We talked about this way back when, when we first introduced this book, but First, Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah are considered a unit. They're considered in one single unit, possibly even one long book at one point, of which Ezra, that's why we call him the chronicler, put all these things together. And what is he ta- what's his title here? A scribe. He's called a scribe. Some traditions of which I tend to lean towards this, I think I'm supposed to stand over here when I say those types of things, <laughs> that he's sort of the great editor of the Old Testament, that it's actually Ezra who decides what order to put the 150 Psalms, collects the writings of Moses and organizes them and puts them together and puts maybe even some of his fingerprints on the Old Testament canon. This is the tradition that, uh, this is the position, let's say, that Ezra holds in tradition. Uh, Provable? No. But thought-provoking, I think, at least. This Ezra was a great, great scribe. And what else was he? A priest. His credentials are listed here, 7, 1 through 5. His lineage, he's the son of Sariah, the high priest, who Nebuchadnezzar killed in 2 Kings. Possibly the grandson. Remember, we've talked about that before. You may skip over uh, maybe less noteworthy people. Hopefully that doesn't happen to my children someday. They skip over their dad. But you might skip over the less noteworthy parts of your genealogy and scripture sometimes. So Ezra's father or perhaps grandfather was the high priest who Nebuchadnezzar killed. And then is, he is the younger brother of Josedek who becomes the high priest. So Ezra's very close to the high priestly office, but because he's not the firstborn, he is a priest. And he's the uncle to Joshua that succeeded him. We talked about this earlier, but there's some sort of, I think of them as monolithic figures or types in the Old Testament. Abraham, the father. Moses, the prophet. David, the king. I'd add Ezra, the scribe. Ezra, the scribe. He's a great, great teacher. And do we have a heavenly father? A heavenly priest and a heavenly king? We do. And do we have a heavenly teacher? I'm not adding a fourth office. I'm just explaining that our Lord is the word. And he is the one, ultimately, that puts together scripture. So when we think of Ezra as a great scribe, it ought to make us think of Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh. And what does this Ezra do? He goes up from Babylon. 
He goes up from Babylon. It says he went up from Babylon. Later, we're going to see, especially in chapter 8, but it, it, you can pick it out here in the, the last part of our section, the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem is a four-month journey. Think about this. I'm going to keep stealing from Exodus here a little bit, Pastor Nate. Think about this. Not 40 years now of coming out of Egypt before we get home. Now just four months. It's a four-month journey to go from Babylon to Jerusalem. And this is what it means when he goes up from Babylon. And it's a perilous journey we find out in chapter 8 because he prays for protection, but he refuses to bring along any troops because he doesn't want to presume upon the king. And so the Lord guides them and they make the journey safely. And why? Because as it says in our second point this morning, the hand of God, the hand of the Lord was upon them. It says it twice in our passage. For the hand of the Lord, his God was on him. Verse six. And again, verse nine. For the good hand of his God was on him. The hand of God was on Ezra. We did this once before with the eye of God. Does God have a hand? No, he is spirit. That says in most of our catechisms. Our confession says he's most pure spirit and invisible. If you hold up a hand and you can see it, it's not invisible. God's invisible without body. Literally, that says that in our confession. He's without body. He's invisible. He's most pure spirit without parts, without passions. So does he have a hand? No, it's okay if you put a hanging question mark on that. No, but it says hand of God here. Why does it say hand of God? This is, you can write these words down. We mentioned this once before, anthropomorphic language. What does that mean? Think of the word anthropology, study of human. Anthropomorphic is attributing to God human physical characteristics. There's another term we talked about before as well, anthropopathic. This is the attributing to God of human emotions. So we are dealing with anthropomorphic language. Why make it so confusing? It's not confusing. It's accommodating to us. It is accommodating to our creaturely minds so we can understand something of what God is doing not who he is. We say, if you want to be technical, these aren't ontological statements about God's essence. These are accommodated statements about something God is doing. Is that clear? I hope so, because now we have to ask, what is he doing with this invisible, made-up, anthropomorphic hand that he does not have? Well, what does a hand do? A hand does a few things, lots of things, really, but let's think of three. A hand protects. Does your hand protect? Can you think of the times that you as a parent protect your child with your hand? Perhaps, as I have to do very regularly with my very precocious two-year-old, the removing of something dangerous from within their reach, that certainly is something that a hand does to protect. How about guide? How about does a hand guide and direct and push and prod you in the right direction? Is the hand sort of like the shepherd's hook or staff, if you will? I would say it is. What else does a hand do? A hand covers. A hand covers. I think of the fathers especially, but this might relate to all of us. I love nothing more than to take my children in my arms, put my hands on top of their head as if there's a fatherly protection over them. With my hands, I cover and protect them. That's what a heavenly father does. He 
protects, he guides, he covers. These are loving, protective gestures. That's why it says the hand of God was on Ezra. Ezra, it says, found favor with the king. Why? Because the hand of our Lord was on him. Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses. Why? Because the hand of our Lord was on him. Ezra makes a perilous journey safely. Why? Because the hand of the Lord was on him. Greater still, our Lord Jesus Christ, being born a virgin, living a perfect life of obedience to the law, sinless, perfect, sacrificed on the cross, appeases the wrath of God, makes what? A complete and full and final satisfaction of the law, doing what we could never do. Also, just to throw this in there in Psalm 1, our Lord Jesus prospering in literally everything he does. Why? Because the hand of the Lord was upon him. And whose hand is on us? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. If you can, John 3. John 3, starting in 31 to the end of the chapter says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. In whose hand are we? We are in the Lord Jesus Christ's hand. Perfect man, perfect God, the cornerstone of the church, living stone. Stones can be alive? They can. And hearts of stone can be turned alive into flesh? They can. We look to Jesus. Most perfect sacrifice. Truly died and truly lives. He keeps us in his hand. He's got the whole world in his hands, right? I hope you're thinking of that song. And so what is next? Observance, observance. If you'd like to, you can think of three subpoints under this, which potentially are even the outline of the sermon. Study the law, do the law, teach the law. We're going to talk about those things in observance. Ezra 7.10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes. The key verse of Ezra, really, if you want to think about it. We got all this way through 80 years of nobody named Ezra in the story, and then at last we get this morsel. So why now is the Lord emphasizing this? Matthew Henry makes this observation. Now we're thinking redemptive biblical theology for a minute. We're zooming as far out as we possibly can and looking at the entire story of the Old Testament. Why here, why now, Ezra setting his heart to study, do, and teach? Because prophecy was about to cease, wasn't it? But it's about to go dark for 400 years in the story of the Israelites. And so it was time to promote scripture knowledge, pursuant, by the way, to the counsel of God through the voice of the final prophet of the Old Testament. Well, Pastor Nate's reminding me that we might think of John the Baptist as the final Old Testament prophet, but let's say Malachi for now. Pursuant to the counsel of Malachi 4.4, 4, 
Remember, this is right before the promises of John the Baptist, the very last verses of the entire Old Covenant. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So here now at last is why we're getting this emphasis, not suggesting that it's not there throughout all of the Old Testament, but why now is this such an important role for the great scribe Ezra? Because prophecy is going to go dark for a season, and so God's people are being pointed to his word to study it, to know it, and to apply it. You could think that there was a lack of the word. Josiah had no words, and they were going about things in the way that they thought best until he did what? He recovered the law of God and read it and read it to the people. Was it like they had been doing their morning readings every day and for weeks and kind of just were getting lazy? They didn't have it. And so there was long periods of time where it wasn't there for them except for out of the mouths of these prophets. Now here at last, study, do, teach, because the office of prophet is about to go silent. We've got God's people in exile Miracles are about to cease as well. I don't actually think there's any more recorded miracles between Ezra and Nehemiah, but um, off of memory. The voice of the prophets are about to go silent, and they're encouraged to study the law. That sounds familiar. We're in exile. We do not have an office of prophet that is giving us new revelation from God. God's ministry is not validated primarily by miracles. So what ought we to do? Study the law. What does it say about you, Lord? And we recognize that the law is given in three parts. This is going to be out of our confession, and I've got all these qualifying notes that I'm going to skip over in my sermon notes here that say, I can't do full justice to a treaty of the law. I'm stealing half of Exodus here, and I'm going to get nine or ten things wrong inadvertently, and you're going to forgive me for that, I hope, but we're going to do a broad rush through this a little bit just to kind of make some points. We recognize that the law was given in three parts, and we call those moral ceremonial, and judicial. You can see these in chapter 19, paragraph 3 and 4 of our confession. I have them circled. One law called moral, one law called ceremonial, one called judicial. It is right, I say civil for whatever reason, judicial you might say. The moral law, however, is what? It's eternal. It's a reflection of God's character. Have you ever thought about the moral law that way? Not just that it's what you ought to do, but that it's a reflection of who God is. It tells us so many things of God. And where is it best summarized for us? In the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial and civil laws were detailed instructions to Israel. Those laws no longer bind any people. It might be helpful, too, to think of it this way. This is at least the way I organize it in my mind. Ceremonial laws. How Israel was to keep the first table. Sundry civil judicial laws, how Israel was to keep second table, love God, love neighbor, unpacked for a time for Israel. So let's look at our confession, or re listen if you don't have it with you, chapter 19 of the law of God. Paragraph 2 says this, the same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. It continued even after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in 10 commandments written in two tables, the four first containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty to man. Were those only for a time? Were those given only for that period? 
No, this is the same law that was written in the hearts of man as image bearers. This law was also given on stones to Moses. And see what it says in paragraph five. The moral law, this is the law that was given on the two stones, does forever bind all. As well justified persons as others. Oh. So it's something for the Christians there, too. Even justified persons must know something of this moral law. To the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator, who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much actually strengthens it. He does not come to abolish the law. He comes to fulfill it. Our Lord does not come and say, those were for a time and a season. Here's some new law. No, the moral law is eternal and it's good for us. And there's three uses, we say, in um, our reformed theological systems of the moral law. The first use is it's a mirror. It's a mirror. We look at ourselves in the mirror of the moral law and we see that we don't live to that standard, that we fail that standard somehow. Our reflection is broken when we look at that. That's the first use of the moral law. The second use is it's a restrainer on society. It's a good thing that there's some amount of shame when society breaks the moral law. Although in these days and ages, that shame seems to be going away far and quickly. But it's a restrainer on society. And what's the third use? It's a rule of life for the believer. You might like to use the word pattern of life because I know those of us that are steeped in a legalistic mentality, which is kind of like the fleshly mentality, it is hard to separate law and gospel in your mind sometimes. And you think that when you study these things and hear these, you're being told, do these and live. May it never be. You cannot you cannot. You are going to make a law unto yourself and die to that standard. Jesus Christ did these things. And did he do these things and live? Well, he first did these things and died. But he died for you who doesn't keep the law perfectly. And he rose again from the dead. And the Lord, yes, judges us against the law. But like this, the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly kept the law. And it's him who I see when I look upon my saints. So do not hear these laws and think it is for your salvation, but do not be allergic to knowing what they say because they are a pattern of life for the believer. If you are a sheep and you are a sheep, you want to know what the shepherd has for you. What do I need to do? Please tell me, what should I do, Lord? The moral law is a great place to look for that. What you owe God, what you owe your neighbor. Don't put this on you as a burden, but don't be afraid to look at it. Further study, if you'd like, paragraph six of the confession lists those three uses. They're a little hard to find. I had to call Brother Chris and go, where are they again? They're a little wordy in there, but uh, suffice it to say, extracurricular activity. Talk to Brother Chris afterwards about the three uses of the law. So what good is it for me? I want grace, not law. Why are you talking about the law so much, Brad? Because... It is how the Christian ought to observe, observe what the Lord asks of us. So the second point under observance, uh, that was study the law, is do the law. But, but not keep 
don't think of, like, I think of the sense of keep as if to somehow be kept by it, as if to be obligated to it. Let's not think of it that way. Think of it as a pattern for you. It's for us who have been saved by the free gift of grace, a pattern of law. And what does our confession say? We talked about this. It's called the same law that was written in the heart of man and that it continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. Should you be concerned with that? If it says that it's a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall, do you want to know about that? Uh, yes, I want to know what does that say for me? I'd like to know. It says it forever binds all, even justified persons. Do you want to know what that's all about? I do. What am I bound by even as a justified person? What's my pattern or rule of life? I can tell you as a leader of a household, especially one going through such large decisions as relocating my family, I would want nothing more than just to be told what to do. What a peaceful feeling that would be. And I'm thankful that the Lord tells us many things that we ought to do. And that is in his scripture and that it is a good moral law. And it says that we're not under a covenant of works. It says literally that although we are not under the law as a covenant of works, even though you are not to be justified by it, even though it is still of great use. It's of great use. Don't ignore something that is of great use. That sounds foolish to me. It is a great use to you. It is a rule of life. It informs us of the will of God and our duty. The Christian's reasonable service, Wilhelmus A. Brockles calls it. What is your reasonable service? To be a living sacrifice and to deny yourself. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice? Maybe the first table of the law tells us what a living sacrifice ought to do. It is to offer worship to God. And what does it mean to deny myself? It is to love my neighbor. I need to know about these things. I need to know about them. These are wonderful patterns for us. Another great resource that's blessed me, William Ames. Yes, I was up this morning rewriting half of this as it occurred to me that the entire second half of his theology system is literally following the Ten Commandments without ever once mentioning it. I think that is very interesting. He has a book called The Marrow of Theology. The good stuff. The marrow. What is that? Two parts, he says. Theology and observance. Okay, that's sounding like Ephesians a little bit. Pastor Nate already went through this. What I ought to know, what I ought to do. Theology and observance. And what is observance? That's the, he uses the moral law for the entire pattern of his second half of his systematic. You know who God is, who you are in light of him, and you know the gospel. What's your reasonable service? Observance. Observe what? The moral law. Not keep. Not as a covenant of works. As an observance. As an observance. What is observance? It is the submissive performance of the will of God for the glory of God. That's why we look to it. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What's the Heidelberg Catechism? Or I always forget which is Orthodox or Baptist, but let's just say the Heidelberg. What is our only hope? We're not our own. What's that? Where's hope in that? Because I belong to Jesus Christ. So what's my right response of gratitude to that? Observance. What would you like me to do, Lord? Not to glorify yourself. Glorify the Lord. Do not keep a covenant of works. I think I've said it enough, but keep that in mind as we talk about the moral law. We don't want to undo the gospel, but we don't want to ignore something that is of great use to us either. So further, under observance, he says observance is needing to be grounded in virtue. 
oh, now we're talking virtue. I'm going to be a virtuous person. So a virtue is an inclination toward good. You guys ever thought about the negative and the positive aspects of the law? So if you say do not murder, is it enough to not murder? No, you have to promote life, uphold life. That's the opposite of not murdering. Both, both of them are there. So virtue is an inclination toward good. If you're inclined toward good, what are you inclined away from or deferred from? Evil. Don't do that. Go that way. Okay? That's virtue. So then he says, observance, virtue, good works. What are we talking about when we say good works? A good work is an act of virtue that flows from the disposition of virtue. And it has a good, efficient cause or beginning. For those of you that are really into the philosophical Trinitarian arguments, you might think, what could possibly be a good, efficient cause or beginning? There's only one answer. It's God. That's the only person that is a good, efficient first cause or beginning. A good work flows from God. And a good matter or object, something that is commanded by God. It's got to flow from God and be something he told us to do in order to be a good work. To be truly good, an action must refer to God as the chief end, not yourself. Not yourself. Observance, which appears in outward actions without the inward, is hypocrisy. So if you do it on the outside but not on the inside, you're a hypocrite. Actually, it says, but if you do it on the inside only and not the outside, that's more like an incomplete work. That's, that's an incomplete work. Maybe you didn't have the opportunity to express your virtue. Uh, but don't be a hypocrite because that's like a, that's like a shadow of a good work. That's like an empty whitewashed tomb. So then we say he goes to observance and good works. And now finally we get to him unpacking the moral law. And how does he describe it? Two headings, religion and justice. Those are the main categories he says are the instructions for godly living. Do you see the two tables of the moral law there? Religion, what man owes God, the first four commandments. Justice, what a neighbor owes a neighbor in the second table. The Christian observance is what we owe God in religion and what we owe neighbors in justice. And further, he describes these virtues under religion, faith, hope, and love. Those all refer to the first table, faith in the one true God, no other gods, no idols, hope in the Lord only, charity or love. You might think that's neighborly, but it's first, love the Lord your God and take not his name in vain, have no other gods nor idols and offer him right worship. Offer him right worship. The hearing of the word. How can you love a God you don't know? The hearing of the word is instructive to us. And prayer, talk to the Lord. He even puts under the first table instructions, taking oaths, lots, testing God, instituted worship, the manner of divine worship, the time of worship, what's the day? All of these are considered first table. So when you think of the Ten Commandments, don't think of them as a burden. They're not a burden to you. They're instructive to you as a believer. We have these great and wonderful tools that help us say, what ought we to do as worshipers of the Lord? Look to the first table as an instruction. Look to the wonderful tools that we've been provided in our confession, in the creeds, in wonderful systematics, all of which are unpacking the truth of Scripture, which is the perfect rule and standard, right? 
And then under justice, what does he say? Now we're talking about second table instructions. Justice and charity towards your neighbor. The honor of your neighbor, which by the way, you can couch that under the fifth commandment. Honor your mother and father. I think we've talked about this here before, but if not, you ought to know that's instructive to how your posture should be to all authority over you. Bosses, masters, magistrates, parents, honor them. That is couched in the fifth commandment. What is the next? He calls it humanity towards your neighbor. What does that mean? Don't murder. Humanity, to have a humane disposition is to not commit murder, but to preserve and protect the life of those around you. Also, the virtue of chastity. He also says commutative justice, which is concerned with the outward benefit of your neighbor. Like, don't steal their stuff. That is instructive. But what does it mean to not steal? It means to be generous, to give, to protect the possessions of those around you. Tell no lies, but tell the truth and have godly contentment. We might think of the virtue and the words we're used to, but I don't know if we always tie them to the moral law. Godly contentment is not coveting your neighbor's property. Godly contentment is not coveting. That's what contentment is. Telling the truth is not lying. That is why the moral law is so good and instructive to us. And by the way, each of these headings are like chapter-length expositions of instruction for the believer. They're, they're helpful guides. They're a pattern of how we can deny ourselves and be a living sacrifice. Not do this and live. It's not do this and live, but it's because he made us alive we pattern our life after him in spirit and in faith. And I don't think time will permit me to go through this in great detail, but I was planning on even looking at a single commandment just for a minute, just doing a small unpacking of the ninth commandment, which we'll just do in brief here. The ninth commandment is do not lie. Do not lie. And what's prohibited in lying? Bearing false witness, the twisting of someone's words, backbiting, gossip, Here's what Brockle says. There is no sin which is so common among all manner of individuals as this vicious serpent, which disturbs peaceful societal living and injures the honor of our neighbor. Don't want to do that. Not, we're not, don't be afraid. Your conscience might be pricked when you hear some of these things. Mine certainly is, writing it down, reading it, and going, are you really going to say these things to them that you fall short of all the time? I am, because it's a great, good guide for us. But here's the other thing when you see these things. This reflects God. So when you go through these things and when you understand the moral law and when you meditate on it day and night, you ought to be meditating on Jesus Christ. How did he do this perfectly? The whole time. He never once gossiped. He never once twisted someone's words. He never stated something untrue. He never recounted something of which he was not certain. He never expressed suspicion about someone that had done something he wasn't sure of. How about this? If we recount the true fault of our neighbors, we slander their reputation. You keep quiet about those things. There's no benefit to that. If you say, have you heard about so-and-so? 
The Lord did none of those things ever. So we too, in gratitude to Jesus, can think on those things. And it's okay if our conscience is pricked towards these things and that we do want to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. But this also tells you about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way and the truth. Still on the ninth commandment. It says, backbiting is saying something behind someone's back. Slander is right to their face. Saying the same kind of stuff face to face out of anger. Deceitful words lying. How about promising something with the never having the intention of doing it? I'll pray for you. Are you sure? Do you plan on it? Or is that a pithy thing to say? I'd encourage you, if you say you're going to pray for someone, then go forth and be faithful and pray. Or maybe say, how about I pray for you right now? How about I pray for you right now? We want to be truth bearers. We want, to, we want to bear the truth as our Lord Jesus does. But in addition to the things we ought not to do to the ninth commandment, there's virtues we talked about enjoined to it. The first is promote with all our strength the good reputation of our neighbor. Render your neighbor honor and respect. And if your neighbor faults, and I am your neighbor and I fault, by the way, if I fault, it says they're to be covered rather than recounted. Do you hear the gospel in that? That we're to cover one another? Because our Lord Jesus Christ covers our sins. He doesn't count them against us, actually, because he took their burden for us. So we're lovers of truth. It says in Ephesians that we're to speak truth, putting away falsehood, speak the truth. It says in Philippians, we are to think the truth. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, etc., think about those things. Speak the truth and think the truth. By the way, in any single one of these laws, you have the potential of breaking the other nine, or if you could perfectly keep one, you could in theory perfectly keep all of them, which you cannot do, by the way. But I think it's helpful when you meditate on the law and you think about the goodness of our Lord to think about the goodness of Jesus Christ and that life that he lived on your behalf of perfect obedience. How, do you say, could a lie cause me to break all the other commandments? Well, here's some of the ways. If you lie, you create a new center of truth built around yourself. You've made yourself God. I'm now deciding what is true. Not something that I see outside of me objectively, something I say. Violate the first commandment there. If you lie, you create an idol out of falsehood. If you lie, you take the Lord's name in vain because Jesus is the way and the truth. Lying is taking the Lord's name in vain. If you lie, you break the holiness of God's rest that he earned for us. If you lie, you dishonor your parents. If you lie, you kill a man's good reputation. You put to death that man's reputation and you raise an unholy, false reputation in its place. You're making yourself into God, and you're killing a good reputation. You commit adultery against a true and perfect God. If you lie, you steal the truth from people. If you lie, you covet your own idea of something more than you covet the truth of something. And why share that? Because the law is perfect, and that's why we want to talk about it, because it reflects God's moral character, and it reflects how Jesus Christ was on earth and how our God is in heaven, a perfect reflection of these things. I think of it a little bit like the attributes of God, to be totally honest with you, where we talk about all the various attributes of God, but then we say they're simple, they can't be divided out. I think the moral law may be accommodated to us, but in a way they're kind of undividable. To keep one perfectly would be to keep all of them, and to violate one in any place would be to violate all of them. So 
Are you measuring yourself against the law? No, that's not what we're about here. But are you seeing something of Jesus Christ when you look at these? I surely and truly hope that that's what the Spirit is impressing upon you. And these are a pattern of life for us. If Jesus is the cornerstone who died and rose from the dead, and now I'm a stone built on top of him, and if Jesus is a living sacrifice, and I'm to offer myself as a living sacrifice, well then, what is my pattern of life? What did the Lord do? The Lord kept the moral law perfect. He kept the full Mosaic covenant. But we have in our mind right now the moral law. This was the standard and pattern of life for us. So that's what we mean by do. Look to those instructive ways to follow our Lord. And what's last is to teach the law. We can say meditate. Why meditate on this? Why meditate on it? Because it is reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see something of his perfect character, and we see Jesus who is truth. He is truth. He is the word. He's the exact imprint of God. And he is the fulfillment of these things. So Jesus Christ is who we see when we look at these things. And just like he is a living stone, so are we. And so we're called to deny ourselves and we're called to offer ourselves as living sacrifices as a nation of priests. As a nation of priests. Remember we said we put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's called mortification. And we make alive the deeds of the spirit, vivification. That is the positive and negative aspect of the moral law. And do we do these by bootstrapping in the grit of our own strength? In the spirit. Because Jesus has won all of that for us already. Who can know the Lord? We can know something of him when we look at his moral law. And we long to see our Lord face to face. And we know someday we will because his hand is on us. His hand is on us and he guides us. What's one of the ways he guides us? Through the moral law. That is a good and useful guide for the believer. What's one of the ways he protects us? In his spirit. In his spirit. And how does he cover us? In his blood. He covers us in his blood. There's no better end, I think, than the final, the fourth verse, I think, of our first hymn. There it is. Hear the message here and uh, take a wonderful correction to anything I've said that's been confusing. I pray it has not been. But our first hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, verse 4. Let us wonder. Grace and justice join. Okay, I got something going on there. That's law and gospel. How do they join? Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. This great storehouse of mercy that our Lord has for us. When through grace in Christ, our trust is. It's through grace that we have a trust in Christ. Justice does what now? It smiles and asks no more. Justice smiles and asks no more of us because it has been fully filled up in Jesus Christ. And so it's why we can say grace and justice have joined. Justice was against Christ on the cross. It was the, the law was filled up on our behalf and so we can enjoy grace. So he who washed us with this blood has secured our way to God. You don't secure it yourself. You don't secure it yourself. He who washed us in his blood has secured our way to God. He covers us, guides us, and protects us forevermore. Amen and amen and amen. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you that your word is good and true and a wonderful guide for us, Lord. May we never put our faith in ourselves. May we never, Lord, trust in our keeping of it. But may we, with humility, always look to you who are the giver and keeper of the law, Lord. You who are perfect, good, and true. May we rest in your sweet, light burden and your goodness forevermore, Lord. And we ask you to help us to put to death, Lord, the deeds of the flesh as we are still burdened by our old selves, Lord. Help us more and more to say goodbye to that and help us more and more to make alive the deeds of the Spirit. And always in you, Lord, always in you. We need your hand upon us. We need your eye on us. We need mercy day after day after day. And we know you will give it because you are a good and loving Father. And yet we beg for it all the more. In Jesus' name we always pray. Amen.